Well, coming back uh, today, after Brenda's great sermon last week, I didn't think I'd have a job. <laughs> Wasn't that a great message? Absolutely wonderful. And uh, if you weren't around last week, and uh, I tell you what, go onto our website, onto the podcast section, and uh, listen to Brenda's debut sermon. It was really, really excellent. As I said earlier, we're up to our 14th study in Philippians, and uh, we do promise that we'll be finished by the end of the month. Um, But today we're looking at uh, Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through to 4, verse 1. Now, as a young Christian in the late 1970s, I became aware that the, the Christian life is a little bit like walking on a high ridge on a cliff top with a deep drop to your right and also a deep drop to your left. One step too far to the left and you'll be down the side of the cliff and also one step to your right and you'll fall down the other side. The result is the same. And in Philippians chapter 3, we have Paul talking about these two drops, either side of the cliff if you like, which are two false views of the Christian faith, two heresies if you will. Two heresies which will end up in misery and emptiness. One is called legalism and the other is called license. Now you probably, some of you at least, are wondering what on earth are these things, legalism and license. Well, legalism is an attempt to please God through a long list of do's and don'ts. I remember when I first became a Christian in 1977, I quickly learned that there were certain expectations placed upon me. I can't remember anyone ever giving me a list of what's in and what's out, the rules and regulations of being a good Christian. But I quickly became aware that there was an expectation, through, often through implication and inference, that I play by the Christian rules. And those who didn't play by the Christian rules uh, were often looked down upon and occasionally whispered about. A few years later, some of my friends from that church got rather fed up with the the rules and constraints of that particular church, and they left for another church, one of these brand new house churches that arose in the 1970s, and perhaps really as a reaction to the heavy-handed expectations of my church, um, the other church actually fell off the cliff the opposite side. Uh, They... They went overboard, excuse the mixing of metaphors there, to show that they were free and that they didn't need to be controlled by a whole load of do's and don'ts. They claimed they were free in Christ. Christ had saved them by his grace, not by works of the law. So they hosted some incredible parties where alcohol flowed, which, as you can imagine, was abhorrent to my mainly teetotaling church. And once there was an expectation in my church to abstain from alcohol and a long list of churchy rules, the other church also had an expectation. And the expectation was that you demonstrated your freedom in Christ by taking part in these parties, whether you liked a glass of wine or not. And it was really an overreaction to the legalism that was in my particular church. And there you have it. 
you have this walking the Christian life along this thin, narrow ledge with two drops either side. One is legalism and one is license. Well, who was right out of those two churches? Neither of them. They both fell off the clifftop. One fell off into legalism, the belief that we can please God by adhering to a long list of church rules. And the other fell off into license, the belief that since we are saved by faith in Christ and not by good works, then we can just live as we pleased. Incidentally, both those churches are much more normal these days. In a much more biblical, should I say, that's the word I was looking for. Um, Romans chapter 6 verse 15 deals with this same dilemma and Paul writes what then shall we sin because we're not under law but by, but under grace by no means now I, I, I quite like the the J.B. Phillips translation of the Bible some of you younger Christians won't know of this but J.B. Phillips was a rather quaint pipe smoking Anglican of another generation and uh, he gave us a modern translation of the New Testament long before we had the message. These days, if we want to look something up in a modern translation, it's almost the message. But when I first became a Christian, the message wasn't around, and it was the J.B. Phillips translation. And this is the way that he writes of uh, Romans 6.1. Now, what is our response to be? Shall we sin to our heart's content and see how far we can exploit the grace of God? What a ghastly thought. I can almost imagine him saying that. What a ghastly thought. And it is a ghastly thought, and it's a ghastly thought for Paul as well. And he doesn't mince his words here. Two weeks ago, um, on a Sunday morning, we studied uh, the passage, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 11, where Paul was talking about an insidious heresy that was uh, doing the rounds in his day. And they were the Judaizers. And the Judaizers said that faith in Christ wasn't enough, that a person also needed to obey the Old Testament law in order to be saved. And uh, this group of people, the heretics, they said that uh, one needed to keep all the Sabbaths and the Jewish ceremonies and the rituals and the Old Testament festivals and circumcision. They were the legalists of the day. And Paul, as we know, dealt with that heresy quite comprehensively. But as we'll see in today's reading, uh, he also has some very, very strong words for those who fell off the cliff the other side. People that Paul refers to as enemies of the cross of Christ in verse 18. They were the ones who fell into license. So let's uh, pick up the passage this morning. If you've got your Bibles, it's uh, chapter 3, verse 17. If not, the words are there on screen for you. Paul writes, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, 
You whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Now we could quite legitimately say that those that we encountered two weeks ago, the Judaizers, they were enemies of the cross as well because they were claiming that the cross of Christ fell short of what was needed for salvation and somehow they needed to make up the shortfall by obeying the Old Testament law. So the Judaizers, they were enemies of the cross. But it seems that Paul is not referring to them in our reading this morning, verse 18 and 19, that he's referring to those who fell off the cliff the other side, the opposite extreme. You see, Paul taught that the Old Testament law wasn't required and that all that one needs is faith in Christ for salvation. But they, in hearing this, concluded, well, if the law is not important for salvation, then it doesn't really matter how you live. It's irrelevant how you live. And that's what they were thinking. So they fell off the cliff the other side, if you get my drift. You know, Paul and in this church, we certainly know this because uh, we've done a whole series on God's grace in, in over many years. And it's one of our favorite subjects to speak about on a Sunday morning. That Paul taught that a person is saved by God's grace. That a person is saved by God's unmerited, undeserved, unwarranted, unearned, gratuitous love, which we receive by faith. As someone once, where are we? There we go. That we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. You see, that's true. Because when someone truly, truly, truly understands God's grace to them, if you understand God's grace to you this morning, you will live passionately for him. You will serve his purposes in this world. And as a response to grace, you will live a life which is God-honoring and holy. And you will shine God's light in a dark world. But these people that Paul called enemies of the cross showed an utter disregard for what Christ had done for them. They weren't out-and-out pagans, but they had a, a knowledge of Christ and his love. The trouble is, they lived for themselves instead of living for Christ. They lived for this earth instead of living for heaven. And Paul describes them in verse 19 by saying that their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. They were enemies of the, of, of the cross of Christ. Now, in reading those words, you might think, my word, Paul didn't mince his words, did he? You know, that's straight at the jugular. Those are very, very harsh words. But we also need to remember, they, yes, they are harsh words, but we also need to remember that he gave those words in tears. For, as often, uh, for I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And you know, Paul is heartbroken by these people who are paying lip service to Christ, but are not living out their lives in honouring to him. And then Paul goes on and he speaks uh, of, first of all, this uh, group of people. He speaks, their God is their stomach. 
a strange phrase, isn't it? And as we know, some people have bigger gods than others. <laughs> um, and this phrase actually means far more than not sticking to your slimming world diets. You know, some people's lives might literally revolve around their eating and their drinking habits. But what Paul is speaking of in this phrase uh, extends well beyond gluttony. Because, you know, in the, in the Lord's Prayer we pray, don't we? Um, uh, Give us today our daily bread. Um, which is praying to God for God's daily provision for us. Uh, it doesn't mean that we're just asking God for a loaf of bread every day. And similarly here, when Paul writes, their God is their stomach, he's not just referring to physical stomachs, but Paul is essentially saying that they were living, first and foremost, for their bodily appetites. Now, God has created us. He has created us body, soul, and spirit. We have been created to enjoy all of our bodily senses, sight and smell and hearing and touch and taste. And there's nothing wrong at all in enjoying good food and good drink and music and exercise and clothes and sexual pleasure within the limits that God has prescribed. You know, some people that I meet, you know, they think that God is miserly, that he's mean, he's a killjoy, he's some ogre who is anti-everything enjoyable and whose favourite words are no and don't do that with a furrowed brow and a wagging finger. That's not the case, as we know. God has given us our senses in order to enjoy good things, but within the limits that he designed them. But there's also a danger here. That these good things that have been given to us as good gifts from God to enjoy can very easily win our hearts. Yes? They can very easily win our hearts. And God's good gifts, if we're not on our guard, can actually replace the God himself, that God himself on the throne of our lives, which is not good. Look at your average weekly magazine. I've not read any of these, by the way. Well, not for a long time, anyway. They virtually, every page is devoted to food, clothing, exercise, drink, perfume, jewellery, or sex. What does that tell you? It tells you it's all about the body. How to feed it, how to clothe it, how to decorate it, how to make it smell good, how to make it feel better. Through advertising, we are told, indulge yourselves, you're worth it. If you see it and want it, you can have it. And Paul is saying that for some people, life is all about they're indulging their senses. Their God is their stomach. Their lives have become self-indulgent, in other words. First commandment, as we know, is that we are to love, that we shall have no other gods before me. And yet the enemies of the cross uh, place these good things given by God before God himself. Jesus said, didn't he, in the Sermon on the Mount, for where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. And I think it's good uh, from time to time to ask ourselves those questions. What is our treasure? What is the one thing that we think above all else? What is it that we live for? What is it we dream about? Where do our lo loyalties and priorities lie? And it's good to, from time to time to ask ourselves those questions. 
Okay, moving on. The next phrase, uh, Paul says, and their glory is in their shame. I don't know if you remember some years back, uh, John Major, he spoke about his um, extramarital affair with Edwina Curry. And he said that that was the most shameful thing that he had ever done. In contrast, Edwina Curry appeared to take great delight in publicizing her sexual exploits, not only with John Major, but with others. And if the media coverage is correct, it would appear that Edwina Curry on that occasion was doing the very thing that Paul is speaking about here not to do, that she was glorying in her shame. And that's what Paul is saying here about these enemies of the cross. Their values were reversed. Isaiah 5 verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And as I read that verse again this week, I, was, I, I really thought that that's very much a verse which is a commentary on our society in, in our day. Glory in our shame. It's quite a poignant uh, phrase, isn't it, really, when you think of it? And it means that we boast at the times we should really blush. And there are so many examples of this in society. I know adolescent lads have always boasted about their sexual conquests or their supposed sexual conquests to remain credible before their peers. But that isn't limited to adolescent lads. These days, choosing not to sleep around is no longer thought of as a virtue in society, but it's often despised and belittled and ridiculed, and young people especially are mocked and taunted by their friends if they haven't got a story to tell. Do you remember the, story, the, the church uh, in Corinth? We studied it uh, two years ago. Uh, we dealt with 1 Corinthians 5, put the words of Paul up on screen. He, he writes, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not even occur among pagans. A father has his, uh, sorry, a man has his father's wife, his stepmother in other words, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief? Again, the church at Corinth, there's a situation there that they were glorying when they, in, in their shame. I remember some years back when I was at a school gate, I was eavesdropping on a conversation between two women. I couldn't help it. I wasn't deliberately going and, you know, trying to hear everything they were saying. But one lady said to the other of how brilliant it was that the checkout assistant in the local supermarket gave her too much change by mistake. She received a £10 note instead of a £5 note in change. And instead of going to the checkout assistant and speaking of the, the mistake that was made, the lady kept the money, but worse than that, she then boasted to a friend about her good fortune. I think you probably could say that she was glorying in her shame. I've also heard people brag about receiving goods that they've fallen off the back of a lorry, or boast because they pulled a fast one over the taxman, or fraudulently bypassing the electricity or gas meter in their homes. Now, you know, I, I need to be honest with you, I must say this, I, I, I've never heard of any Christian glory in their shame in those specific ways. Never heard, never heard that at all. But I have heard Christians glory in their shame in other ways. You know, most Christians I know don't sleep around and then boast of their exploits. 
Most Christians I know don't brag about some fraudulent activity that they've been involved in. But let me suggest some ways that Christians might glory in their shame. I'm going to give you three actual accounts. I've changed the names, and it's from no, no one in this church. Okay? So you can all breathe a sigh of relief. You can all relax, okay? But all these are actual conversations that I've heard with others. Mavis, not her real name. She said, I gave George what for? I sorted him out. I put him in his place. Now, the fact for Mavis, who was a Christian, that she didn't follow Jesus, who was meek and gentle in heart, gentle in spirit, and he was the one who taught us to turn the other cheek and go the second mile, that's one thing. But then to <coughs> boast about that to other people, that she had sorted him out and put him in his place, was, I think, an example of glorying in shame. Cheryl, not a real name again, who said, I gave her a piece of my mind. She deserved it. Again, it's obviously a boast. Now, Cheryl shouldn't have been boasting about giving someone a piece of her mind. Actually, she should have been blushing over the fact that she might have given someone a piece of her mind. Now, I'm sure that we've all been there on those times when we've lost it, yeah? Or are you too holy? <laughs> I've been there. doesn't happen often. But on the, there have been occasions when I sort of blew my top. I say, I can't even remember the last time it happened, but it has happened. And I didn't feel good about myself. I didn't think, yeah, I'm going to go and tell someone so that I've sorted someone out. Actually, I felt very, very shamed about it. You know, we should blush, perhaps, rather than boast in those situations. But Cheryl, I give her a piece of my mind and she deserved it. And do you know what I thought? That's just as well God didn't give us what we deserved. We'd be in serious trouble. Gossip is another way of glorying in our shame. Let me tell you what Bert did to me, or how Mary treated me, or how Fred ignored my needs. That again, I would say, is glorying in our shame. Well, you might say, well, how does that work? I'm not sure what you, what you mean there, Steve. Jesus said, if your brother or sister offends you, go and show him or her their fault just between the two of you. Why did Jesus give that advice? Jesus gave that advice is that two people who are out of sorts with each other might be reconciled without bringing other people into it. And if you're reconciled, other people will never know. Now, the shame part of that is the unforgiveness, but the glorying in the shame is actually the gossiping about it afterwards instead of putting it right in the Jesus way. Now, just, just some very, very practical down-to-earth examples there. And, uh, and when we study on Sunday mornings, we need to try to do that, yeah? We need to, because, you know, sometimes Paul is a bit difficult to understand. But we not only need to try to understand what he was talking about in his context in his day, but then grab that and bring it down to us today in our lives. And those are just three, I'm sure there are many other examples of that. 
He also speaks of having their mind set on earthly things. Now, Christians, as Christians, we're called to be spiritually minded. But that doesn't mean that we go around all day with our head in the clouds just quoting Bible verses. So what does it mean then? It means that we look at earth from heaven's point of view and that we make decisions from our eternal values, not from the passing fads of society. Let me give you that again. That we make our decisions from eternal values, not from the passing fads of society. American sociologist Tony Campolo tells of a time that uh, he took a group of students to see the work of a, a mission agency in Haiti. Uh, let me use his words. Let me read the story as he tells it, if I may. Tony Campolo. We were in the northern part of the country where we have a medical clinic, and we saw 300-plus people, all desperately ill, lined up for help. There was only one doctor and two nurses, and they could only take care of about 60 or 70 folk. The rest were turned away. It was fairly obvious that a significant number of them would never come back. They were too sick to make it the trip another time. One of my students, Charlie, looked on all of this and said, Doc, I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to go back to school, finish my work. I'm going to go to medical college, and I'm going to be a missionary doctor in this place. Just you wait and see. Well, I met Charlie in New York a few years later. I bumped into him on a sidewalk, and we talked. After we exchanged pleasantries, I discovered to his credit that he had become a doctor. Do you know what he was doing? Cosmetic surgery. And not doing the kind that makes any sense. He was doing the kind of cosmetic surgery that caters to a sexist culture that evaluates women by the shape of their breasts. The more he talked, the more I felt a queasiness in my stomach. He told me how he was still going to church and making financial contributions to the ministries of the congregation. He went on and on and on until I could not handle it anymore. Stop it, stop, stop it, I said to him. Just stop it. I don't want to hear anymore. Charlie, you had your dreams. You had your visions. You were going to do something incredibly significant with your life. And look at you, Charlie. You sold out the dreams. You sold out the visions. For what? A jacuzzi and a Porsche. That's what. You have a brilliant mind. A young man with skills. And you sold out to the system. And for all the good things the system can give you, dress it up any way you want, Charlie. You're a sellout. Do you hear me? Tell you what, I wouldn't want counselling from Tony Campolo, would you, really? <laughs> he continues. A couple of years later, I told that story to a Lutheran church in Southern California. In the congregation was a young man who had a nervous disorder. And about four, every 45 seconds, he would make a disturbing moaning sound. He disrupted my concentration. It became increasingly difficult for me to continue to my talk. I, I was inclined to ask him to leave, but then I thought better of it and did my best to finish the sermon. Afterward, I retreated back to the hotel where I was staying, despondent that the evening had been such a failure. Two weeks later, I received a letter in the mail from, the woman, from a woman in that church. 
She told me that that particular young man seldom comes to church because of his disorder. But he came that particular night because he had read some of my books and really liked me. He was sure I wouldn't mind. That made me feel all the worse. Her letter went on to explain that the following Sunday he came to a Sunday school class of young adults and asked for the opportunity to speak. He did his best to communicate amidst the moaning and groaning created by his disorder. He related the story of Charlie as I had told it and he concluded by saying, I can't ever be a doctor because I am what I am. I can never go on the mission field like Charlie could have. But if I could, if I could, I wouldn't waste my life like Charlie is wasting his. By the end of that class time, five of the young men and women there had committed their lives to missionary service. And Paul here says that some were enemies of the cross whose destiny is destruction. In other words, what he is saying is by focusing on earth, by living to indulge their bodily appetites, hoping to find happiness and fulfillment and joy, they instead have reaped emptiness and misery and unrest and discontent. Paul had spoken to the Philippians about the enemies of the cross, these people who had been taken up with earthly things, but now he changes direction. In verse 20, but, but our citizenship is in heaven. I think that uh, in previous studies, I've mentioned to you uh, then that Philippi was a, a Roman colony. In other words, it was a little Rome, about 800 miles away from Rome. And the citizens of Philippi thought that Rome was their native land. And in Philippi, they dressed as Romans uh, in the Roman to uh, togas. And they spoke the Roman language. And they were governed by the Roman law. And they worshipped the Roman emperor. They had dual citizenship. They were living in Philippi, but everything about them was Roman. And Paul, in effect, says to these Philippian Christians that just like Philippians who had dual citizenship, that they were citizens of Philippi and they were citizens of Rome, the Christians there also had a dual citizenship. They were citizens of earth, but they were also citizens of heaven. Their real homeland was heaven. They were born from above when they were born again. Their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life in heaven. In heaven their interests are promoted. It is to heaven that their prayers aspire. It is to heaven that many of their friends have gone and they one day will go. It is in heaven that their inheritance awaits them. And it is in heaven that the Lord is preparing a place for them. I don't know if you've ever been into a foreign, uh, into a foreign country and gone into an embassy. It's like uh, going into a little bit of the, the, the country of the embassy, even though you're in a foreign land. And in that embassy, you've got the decorate, uh, decorations and furnishings and dress and language, even though it's on foreign soil. And in that embassy, you will be reminded of the country whose embassy it is. And Paul is saying here that our homeland is heaven and that our lives on earth should bring a little bit of heaven. And when people see us, they are reminded of God. Paul says that citizens of heaven do not have their mind on earthly things, but on heavenly things. 
You see, when we recognize that our true home and our permanent residence is somewhere else, I think that we will stop worrying about having it all here on planet Earth. Forgive me, I know I've told you, illustrated it this way to you before, but it's a little bit like going on your summer holidays in um, a rented cottage in Skegness. And you've got this rented cottage in Skegness for two weeks. Well, during that two weeks, you're not going to buy a sky satellite system or new furnishings for that place. That would be ridiculous. It's only your rented holiday home. You concentrate on your permanent home. That's what you need to prioritize, not your holiday accommodation. And the illustration there is that our life here on Earth is just like that rented holiday accommodation in Skegness. God has got so much more for us. Our true home is in heaven. Someone once said, the best use of your life is to spend it for something that will outlast it. Or someone else said, aim for heaven and you'll get earth thrown in as well. Aim at earth and you're going to miss both. But isn't that what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you, referring to the material necessities of life. How many of you have heard of the lady called uh, Joy Carol Wallace? Any of you come across her? Her husband is a pro prolific uh, writer, American writer, Jim Wallace. Well, Carol, uh, uh, Joy Carol Wallace served for some time as an Anglican priest in um, uh, Brixton, London. Uh, she actually was the, the person who was the inspiration behind the Vicar of Dibley. So the Dawn French character was based on, on Joy. And she tells a wonderful story about a lady in a church who underwent serious uh, surgery. And because she was elderly, her prospects were quite slim of recovery. But fortunately, she did recover from surgery. And as she opened her eyes... The first thing that she could see with a very, very blurred image of the doctor dressed in his typical white doctor's jacket, she smiled and said, hello God, my name is Mary, <laughs> which I, I just love that story. You see, that's the kind of assurance that all Christians have through faith. Earth is just a temporary home we are passing through. We're pilgrims on this journey. One day we will meet the Savior face to face, whether it's through our deaths or whether he returns during our lifetime. And Paul writes, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that these words are far more impactful to the Philippians living in the first century where they were than they are to us in the 21st century. Because you see, in every Roman colony, there was a great ambition that one day the Roman emperor would come and visit. It's, I suppose it's a little bit like uh, the British colonies hoping that one day they'll get a visit from the, the British royal family. And the Roman emperor at this particular time was also worshipped. And he was worshipped as the saviour of mankind. So whenever a Roman emperor would turn into a colony, the people would come running into the streets, the saviour, our saviour is here, our saviour is here. And Paul says to the Philippians that they are saviour. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming one day. Who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. You know, those 
words are quite familiar to many of you, I'm sure. They're words which are used as part of the committal in a funeral service. And while the Roman emperor visited a colony, he normally brought with him some gifts, some privilege, some tax relief. And Paul says that our saviour from heaven, when he comes back, he's bringing something for us as well. That he will give us new bodies. Our present bodies are a fine sorts for this earth, but they're lowly bodies, they're bodies of humiliation. They're bodies that let us down. And the older we get, the more aware we become of their limitations. Now these enemies of the cross, they were living for the benefits of their earthly bodies. But Paul says that this earthly body, this lowly body, it's not going to be here to last. And that we are waiting a day when we will receive new bodies, glorious bodies, bodies like the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.1, Paul writes, Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. What a day that will be. Revelation 21.3, John writes of heaven, and God himself will be with them and, he will, and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying, or pain. Wow. The sons of John D. Rockefeller, who was one of the wealthiest men in, men in history, were destined to inherit the vast fortune of the father. But his, the father, John D. Rockefeller, wanted his sons to know and experience what work was really like. So to achieve this end, he insisted that they go out with other ordinary laborers and work on the oil fields. And for more than two years, the Rockefeller boys worked on the drilling rigs. They worked long, hard hours. At the end of the, the workday, they were exhausted. And at night, they would sit with their fellow laborers over a beer. And one of the Rockefellers was asked how he liked being among the men. And he responded, I, I just love it, he said. I just love it. This has been one of the best times of my life. One of the laborers hearing this with a certain amount of sarcasm said, that's because you know you're not staying. You know that there's something better out there waiting for you when this is all over. You would look at things differently if you thought that working in these fields, in these oil fields, was all that there was for you. And you see... To know that this present experience, this present life, isn't all that there is, that there's something beyond this, affects the way that we view our present circumstances. And those who are living with heaven in focus are not only the most content people on earth, but they're also, I believe, the most effective for God. Time has gone. Thank you for the, the bell there. I, I, I don't know who it was. <laughs> Yeah, you're very kind. Can you just see me afterwards? That's, that's, that's good. That's good. I know that uh, a lot of you have uh, done the Alpha course recently and you've become very aware of the architect of the Alpha course, uh, Nicky Gumbel. Well, he, he's written a book entitled uh, A Life Worth Living. And I just want to finish with a, with a direct quote from that book. And I, I find it very, very good. Dealing with this passage. In this passage, Paul tells us that everyone is on one of two paths. There are two destinations. One is head, heading for heaven, 
the resurrection of the dead and the transformation of our bodies to bodies uh, to be like his glorious body. The other is heading for destruction. There are two powers at work, the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit and the power of our bodily appetites. There are two possible lifestyles, those willing to share in his sufferings and those who want a lifestyle of ease and comfort. There are two possible gods, our Lord Jesus Christ or our stomachs. There are two possible attitudes to Jesus, either friendship at an intimate level or enemies of the cross. Ultimately, there are only two ambitions, either his glory, Jesus-centered ambition, or our glory, self-centered ambition. Paul says, in effect, I have changed my ambitions. Now I am Jesus-centered. Will you join me? What a great way to finish and a great place to finish. There are two paths, two destinations, two powers at work, two possible lifestyles, two possible gods, two possible attitudes, and two ambitions. Guys, would you come and join me, please? Let's pray. Would you stand?